This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Magnan. And I'm Luc Olivier Dumeblet. And our topic this week is... iOS 13, Minimum Deployment Target. I'm a bit late on my usual schedule, but uh, I haven't forgotten this one, so we'll be talking about iOS 13. Sweet, but first I have some follow-up. And before we get into the actual follow-up, we did mention on episode 151, which was our Game of the Year episode, that we would be doing something special in April uh, with regards to both of us turning 30 this year. Uh, So for my birthday episode, which is episode 159, which is probably going to be released on April 25th, assuming nothing catastrophic happens in between, uh, we will be talking about Zelda A Link to the Past, which is a game I believe neither of us have really played before. I did not I rented it once, and I never found the opening objective, so I just (laughs) turned in circles all weekend long. That was great. Oh, wow. That's a nice way to rent a game. I was not a very smart video game player when I was a kid. Uh, (laughs) It was released in 1991 on the Super Nintendo, but you can find it pretty much on any Nintendo system right now. Uh, You can get it for free through Nintendo Switch Online. You can get it through most versions of the Virtual Console. It's on the Super NES Classic Edition, and it was re-released on the Game Boy Advance. Uh, So if you want to play along with us, just make sure that you've played the game before April 25th. Do you want to just quickly mention maybe I will play it? I think uh, uh, for me personally, it will be uh, through the Nintendo Switch with Nintendo Switch Online. What about you? Uh, I wanted to get it on on new 3DS. The problem is that my new 3DS battery has hit a new low and I basically picked it up, booted it up, went to the store, and the battery died. So within like five minutes. Uh, so I need to replace my new 3DS battery. So that is out of the window, and I will be playing the uh, Super Nintendo version emulated on an Android console. So, Ooh. Yeah. It, nice, nice. Some more episode 151 Game of the Year follow-up. Um, Crash 2 was one of my games of the year, but I got Crash 4 as a Christmas present uh, from my brother who got it for me for Christmas. I streamed about two hours of it. Uh, I did a Japanese-only stream during the holiday season, uh, and I am absolutely loving Crash 4. I've heard a lot of positive things about Crash 4 from various reviewers and all of that, and I heard a lot of people say there's a lot of Crash 2 influence, and I definitely agree with that. Um, So if crash 2 was a game that you enjoyed maybe check out crash 4 and there is a possibility that we might take uh, talk about it uh at the end of the year if it's still at the top of my list but so far it's pretty high up there next up is some episode 150 follow-up this was our episode where that was half about stadia half about destiny 2 uh, and i want to recommend people go watch a review by the youtube channel skill up uh for destiny 2 beyond light uh it's really interesting because it's uh skillup is a reviewer who plays the kind of games that destiny is so like heavy loot based mmo type multiplayer games uh he's really into that and he reviews a lot of them and he was pretty big into destiny for a while and then around the same time as i dropped off from destiny he also dropped off from destiny and he came back for beyond light so it's very interesting to Hmm. listen to his review as someone who basically stop playing it exactly the same time as him and more or less get the same things that I already knew confirmed to myself. Uh, And one of the points that I thought was particularly relevant uh, to your experience in Destiny 2 is that he said that Destiny 2 is a game that that assumes you already know 
you want to play it and that it's actually quite bad at trying to convince someone who doesn't know why they should be playing destiny to stick with it and i think i kind of agree with that and i'd be curious to hear what you have to say about that this is a totally fair statement i think we mentioned it while we played a bit i was like okay yes you helped me you know you guided me through some of the parts when we first played together but i was like I know there was supposed to be a story, but like even then, I don't really know enough of the minimal, just kind of a spark, I would say, for me to be like, okay, I understand that part of the story, so I understand why I need to continue playing the game. Uh, I think I more or less continue playing the game because it is a fun game to shoot at things, and I think you've mentioned that a lot. And uh, after playing maybe five or six hours throughout the last month or so, it's not a lot, but enough for me to feel that. Like to understand that statement and agree with you. So, uh, yeah, I totally understand because you are more or less just thrown into the game. It's like, oh yes, you have a first like we use this this button to do this, this button to do that, and after that, it's like, good luck. Yep, have fun. Yes. What I find really interesting about this review, though, is that it it's almost kind of like an FAQ for all of the weird shit in Destiny uh, that like you know there's probably a reason why it's this way but you don't know the reason and it goes through a lot of these like weird mystery points in destiny beyond light and uh just this year's release in general whether you actually have the expansion or are free to play and just like why is the system weird why does it feel like half the game is missing because half the game is actually missing uh and all of these things uh so i think it's really interesting if you're new to destiny which i have heard from a few of our listeners who started playing destiny over the holiday season maybe on some next-gen consoles uh so that can be interesting for you as a newcomer to get that context that you don't necessarily have if you haven't played destiny before and if you're a fan of multiplayer games and how multiplayer game systems are built and evolve over time uh, there's a lot of interesting uh, knowledge to absorb from this video as well so i just wanted to mention that on this week's episode and then the last piece of follow-up is actually about 64-bit for some reason. Actually, it's it kind of accidentally happened to me because over the holiday season, there was a Steam sale and there was a game I was interested in playing, but it was only available on Windows. So I decided to go dig into Wine. And I, here is your short explainer about Wine and 64-bit Windows on modern Mac OS, just to save you some time. Don't do it? Well, that too. Well, you probably won't be able to. That's the point. Uh, uh... So... An interesting thing is if you're running Catalina or later, only Wine64 works. If you try to run Wine.exe, which is the non-64-bit version of Wine, it will simply crash and tell you this is not 64-bit. Uh, so cool. What can Wine64 do? Well, it can only run Windows apps that are 64-bit, which if you have listened <laughs> to that episode, is almost none of them. <laughs> so that effectively means that if you want to run most Windows executables through Wine on a new version of Mac OS, you can't. Uh, now, I think Ducadivia has had some success with Crossover, which is a proprietary fork of Wine uh, that is more or less tailored for better gaming support. Success? Define success. I guess the goal of what I had to do with it didn't work on my uh, personal laptop. And I haven't really traded with my more recent work laptop. Uh, but yeah, again, I wanted to play Age of Empire 2. And guess what? Uh, sadly for me, it didn't work. I guess I need a new uh, a new uh, M1 Mac. Because everybody on the internet seems, seems to mention <laughs> that it does work. What I will say is mixed success is already way better than what I was having. Which is literally okay. just like 
segmentation fault and like oh wow okay so uh so yeah crossover has a solution to this but open source wine users may be out of luck i've tried all the versions that are in homebrew i've done all the stuff i don't necessarily want to build my own from source i assume it'll probably just come out to the same thing i got from homebrew anyway because i think they're just using the same git repo uh so yeah wine on catalina later it's not great uh, I don't know why I'm surprised by this, but there you go. I, I found that out during my holiday season. And I'm going to save you all some time. That is it for my follow-up. Now we can go into the main part of the show. See, uh, I think we should have follow-up in our pre-show because in the pre-show I did tell you I have nothing, but it reminded me while you were talking about follow-up that I had some elements. Uh, first one is about the last episode uh, when I was talking about my game of the year. Uh, you did mention that there was an incomparable episode about it. So I don't want to mention it because I want people to really listen to the past episode. So they've skipped it. Uh, hopefully you'll take that as a tease to go uh, listen it, uh, listen back to it. Uh, but I'll put a link in the show notes because I did finally listen to it, uh, the incomparable episode about that specific game, and it was really, really a nice of an episode. And I should say maybe I should have not listened to it because I was listening to it over the last weekend, and I was literally texting and oh man, I need <laughs> to play to this game again. So yes, so your mileage may vary, but I think. Uh, Part of the episode, they've addressed some of the critiques that Yannick was mentioning, uh, and I think they've done it in a fair way as fans of that game, but also uh, like open-minded people. So I strongly invite you, if you enjoy that game, uh, to go watch it. Kind of related to that, actually. I should probably try to find more of the podcasts that I listen to around the time of the game's launch, and specifically, maybe even like in the weird period between when they were allowed to talk about a part of the game and when they were allowed to talk about the whole game. I think there's some interesting podcasts that you might be interested in listening to because you sort of missed out on all of that by not partaking in the PR cycle. But that that was, a, I think, like, even if I didn't play the game and I don't really care about the game, it was a fascinating part of last year's gaming discourse. and <laughs> You kind of missed out on it. Good point. I'll uh, await those suggestions. And the other point is less of a follow item. I guess more real-time follow-up on what you just said about uh, trying to run uh, Windows apps on macOS. So yes, I did play a bit with the... Uh, why am I making on the name? On cross- Age of Empires 2. No, but the... Oh, Crossover? Crossover, yes. I, I just had the word cross in my mind. I was like, I, I know I'm missing something. So yes, crossover. But uh, my brother a couple of days ago called me and he was like, yeah, I'm playing... Uh, a- uh, no, he's not playing uh, Age of Empire. He was playing uh, Con- Command and Conquer Red Alert 2 mm. on his old Windows PC. And he was asking me why did the cutscene didn't work. And let me tell you, that was the experience I had with Age of Empire. The cutscene didn't work and most <laughs> of the UI wouldn't load, even if the game would boot on my laptop. So it was funny to me that even with my brother with his old Windows 7 PC, at least for him, the, the real-time strategy UI and then like, like the, the gameplay would load correctly, which was not my experience with Crossover. Uh, but it's funny that maybe like a week or two separated, we had more or less the same idea. Uh, so playing all our real-time real-time strategy games from our youth uh, on him old laptop and me uh, tr- trying to do the Mac and uh, having some strange results and uh, seeing what uh, what we could do. So I more or less end up saying, you know, I don't really know what to do for this. Like Google on the forums, I'm sure somebody will tell you. It's like, no, no, the game plays. I just was surprised that the cutscene didn't work. And you know what? 
I don't mind having the cutscenes. I'm like, perfect. Go <laughs> enjoy it. Good. So now for the main topic for this week. Uh, so as I mentioned in the intro, this is the fourth annual iOS minimum deployment target episode. So yes, the episode is going to be a bit more heavy on the developer side. It's been a while since we've done uh, a developer-focused team. Uh, and I realized that this is becoming kind of a, a main point for my fall season. It's really a topic I really want to in, to have every time there's a new OS getting released. Um, but I can realize that uh, this fall we were busy on other things and I didn't really focus on that. So I was like, oh yeah, it's a really great moment to revisit that uh, now that iOS 14 has been out in a while and that developers are starting to update to the latest Xcode and a lot of fun stuff. So it's I feel it is a good time to revisit new APIs from the previous iOS version. And you might ask why. So a quick reminder why I do those episodes is uh, this the, the the idea behind this episode comes from a somewhat I would say a general consensus. I'm sure we'll we might hear from a lot of uh, our iOS developers say no I have to f- I only support the latest one or no I'm stuck on iOS 10. Poor you if you're stuck to supporting iOS 10 still. But uh, the general consensus and even Apple throughout the years have said that more or less that app developers for their iOS platform should support the current iOS version and the previous one uh, and always move forward Move forward this way. So, of course, this year, it means that it, you're, you should move your minimum OS support, so minimum deployment target from iOS 12 to iOS 13. Again, like I mentioned a bit in the intro, uh, I usually like to do that in the fall season. We're in the middle of winter. I really like to keep that around the launch of the new OS, but hey, uh, I didn't forget, so we will do that. So it does mean that we are revisiting uh, content from two WDC ago. So yeah, so it's a, a while. Uh, again, uh, last but not least, before we start looking at some framework and new APIs. Uh, I do hope that you are uh, one of the more lucky developers if the place you work at requires for any business reasons to support old OSs. Hopefully it's not that far because if you were planning or are currently doing the Xcode 12 migration, so to make sure you use the latest IDEs, uh, you realize that it dropped support for iOS 8. So hopefully you were not still supporting iOS 8 uh, because you would be stuck on Xcode 11 uh, for up until you decide to deprecate supporting this OS, which that would suck. I think uh, in the recent years, keeping uh, staying up to date with Xcode is always good, even if you have a different uh, support strategy for iOS versions. Good. Yannick, do you want to guess which first... API I will talk tonight. Swift UI. Oh, you're good. You're mm. good. So the first set of APIs, and it, this is really a new one because it's newly introduced is Swift UI uh, in iOS 13 is Swift UI, and its friend and colleague combine uh, because it's quite hard to talk about Swift UI without to talk about uh, combine. Um, so if you lived under the rock and you didn't know what Swift UI is, it is more or less as UI kit. A UI framework. So it's a way to uh, provide views, controls, and layout structure uh, to define your user interface. But the main difference where about with UIKit, uh, if we go back in the history of UIKit, you could see that it is kind of the um, modernization of AppKit. And I'm 
walking on eggs by saying that, but more or less kind of like it was the evolution. So it used <laughs> the same design patterns based on objective C, based on the responder chain, based on dynamism of objective C. And yes, we'll go into that topic again a <gasps> bit tonight uh, because UI kit and even AppKit, but UI kit was, it felt like a good objective C framework. Yes. Overall, I, I think that is still fair to say uh, after 13, 14 years of having it. Yes, there's still rough edges, like maybe it is exposing a bit too much details to you as an iOS dev. I think the best example is the powerfulness that UI control is, uh, where sometimes you have to go. I always, have, I'm always reminded that I think they start to fix that though in the recent OS versions, where you always need to remind yourself that you need to listen to the touch up inside event on your button, uh, because that's the event that tells you that the button has been clicked more, been uh, tapped more or less. So uh, those kind of like powerful, those uh, powerful aspects are are nice, but sometimes they you need to remember those tricks. Of course, after developing apps for years, you'll remember them, but. Uh, uh, but you need to remember them at some point. Let's be honest, though. UI control is way better than NSL. Am I right or am I right? Uh, <laughs> for a moment, I heard from my um, developer friends that use and worked a lot on AppKit and develop not uh, developing apps on using AppKit. Uh, people seems to say yes, uh, but I do have kind of from I've never really used NSLs, but I do have a, a nice comparison to make with NSL and Swift UI because in some strange word they are somewhat related. And you'll see why in just a bit. The main dif- I think the same way that UI kit fits like a glove on top of Objective C, you can say that Swift UI fits like a glove on top of Swift. So- <laughs> I I don't want to steal the spotlight, but I You can, you can. I mean, like, if the hand is all mangled and it fits perfectly on the mangled hand, that means that the glove is all oh, mangled, too. Oh, So, I guess you're referring to that, yes, Swift add to evolve to do to, to bring some nice functionality that Swift UI provides. It, it's the topic of an upcoming episode, so you will hear a lot about my opinions in that episode, but I, I am not a fan of Swift UI or really of Swift anymore. Ah, interesting. So I don't want to go into that conversation because that's not the goal of this episode. But my point, and I'm sure we'll argue a lot about this, I do feel though that Swift UI is is more or less a UI framework built in the world of people developing new frameworks with Swift design thinking or design processes. This I agree with. (laughs) Okay, so... You might, but you might not agree with uh, more or less what you're saying is you might you might agree that that's the case, but you don't agree with that design thinking more or less. But we can discuss. I I don't like it, but it is a good fit for Swift, and I also don't like Swift for similar reasons. Mm. It's all symbiotic. The main difference, though, okay, I'll move away now because I'm sure yes. we'll continue that. So I'll move away, ignoring what you said. Uh, not, I don't want to be mean about that, but I just want to move forward because I'm sure we'll spend the next 30 minutes on that subject. I guess what? It's a good way to tease your next episode. I don't show you to your next episode, but it's not the next episode. <laughs> okay, okay, but a future episode about Yannick's opinion about Swift and Swift UI. Yes. I'm already eager about it, but I digress. Okay, so again, Swift UI. 
uh, it is a Swift a UI framework built on top of Swift, meaning it also like uses the what makes Swift a powerful language. Though the main difference compared to others Apple framework like UIKit, AppKit is it is more of a descriptive uh, UI framework and. You know what? Some of our uh, web developer friends might remember those words. They might remember those concepts with uh, what React is. And it's you don't describe, you do describe what's on the screen, but with object, with in this case with SwiftUI, it would be with struct, with protocols, and less with ob- an object mentality. But it is in such a way that this hierarchy of things of objects they're not literally what's rendered on screen they're kind of a representation of what's rendered on screen and what's nice about it is by you applying changes to this hierarchy of structs uh, the framework itself can compute a diff behind those two and in theory and UI struggle a bit at, at first with that but it's getting good improvements is it can do as much few changes with animations or with just like changing the underlying layers on the screen by computing the smallest the smallest disk possible between those two. It does mean that your description of the UI is really verbose. And verbose in such a way, like you want a button, you write, I want a button. And you want a button and a label right under the each other, but you, you say, hey, I want a horizontal view, which they call H tag. And you say, okay, I pass in a, a function that tells it, hey, here's the content inside of me that will be horizontally stacked together or vertically stacked. And the order you pass in the elements in that function tells the system which what is the order. So when you, like, somebody with limited coding experience could quickly understand by reading the code the uh, structure of your UI, which I think that is a good benefit for sure. Uh, what I've seen in a lot of the examples and tutorials is a lot of people tend to put a lot of their view content in one view struct, uh, and those can get quite huge. So of course, other uh, programming concepts come back onto this. Why I was saying that uh, Swift UI reminds me a bit of NSL, and it's, it is with this concept that you describe what's on screen, but you don't have access to what's rendered on screen, like the real control. So you need always have to go through um, an indirection layer. It seems, though, that Apple is, has made it quite good to make sure that all of what is users in the underlying UI views or layers or NS views from when you run Swift UI code on the Mac that all the components, all the properties of what you can show on screen are accessible. But in theory, because it's an indexation layer, they could start removing customization point for you. Because let's say they don't want you to do this. Uh, they don't want you to have a specific color for a button. They might not allow you to uh, customize a, the text color. I'm of course I'm using a super dumb example that they wouldn't block, but uh, it could in theory in the future or even starting soon start to block specific combination of UIs because uh, there's always this indirection that they end up control how it is rendered on screen. Yeah, and because of that layer of indirection, it's actually kind of interesting. It becomes kind of like 
metal in a given way where they can just swap the backend that's under that to whatever is relevant in this current case. And because this is a somewhat cross-platform uh, framework, uh, like they can build a backend that is for UIKit on iOS. They can build one that is for AppKit on the Mac. They can build one for... I guess it's technically still UI kit on the watch. It's just a different skin. Um, right. But like you, you get the idea. It's interchangeable. And let's say they make AR goggles next year or whatever. Uh, if they have a weird AR kit backend that they have to make so that you can continue to develop Swift UI interfaces, but for AR goggles, they can do that. And it means the API stays the same for you, but the backing store is completely different. Totally. And it's funny that you say it's somewhat cross platform, uh, because I would say that like when we went to, when we attended remotely WWDC 2019 and they announced with UI, they did say it's like a, uh, like a app, uh, like a platform framework or it's a cross platform. Uh, I forgot the exact wording they used, which meant that you might not use the exact same code on all the different platforms you support, but you'll use the same concept because it's the same framework. They might, the framework might not expose all the same functionality on the Mac versus on iPad, on iOS, or on the mobile phones, or even on the watch. But like to show a button, this, it is the same logic. To show a view, the same logic. To react, like to push a mod, like you take the model and you want to change how it looks on screen because. I don't know, you receive new data from the server or stuff like that. Like those concepts still applies whether you run, you use SwiftUI on iOS, you use SwiftUI on the Mac or on the watch or all the uh, iOS, the, all the Apple platform that supports it. Yeah, it's very much what I was asking for when I was asking for UIKit on the Mac, which is not what I, what I was saying was not, I want Catalyst on the Mac, which is what we ended up getting. But right. what I wanted was a consistent API across all of their platforms that would allow you to do things in a consistent manner so that if you are a developer that targets multiple Apple platforms, your knowledge transfers from one to the other, but you are not going to be using the same code on all of these. Though, so this doesn't apply if you still want to support iOS 13 and 14 plus possibly go to Mac Catalyst, which will come later in this episode. Uh, What I say is like that was when they announced it. I think they're slowly but surely kind of backtracking this. Uh, <sighs> and I think Mac Catalyst is a reason why. Because the, the funny thing is, that's more kind of spoiling the next year's episode, but a big change in iOS 14 and Mac Catalyst version of iOS 14 with Pixar and all that stuff is they included a shit ton of framework that were only available on iOS devices that now are on the Mac yep. so that it's make it easier for you to compile your iOS code base on the Mac with one click, as they say. We'll see. It's not really one click, but I digress. <laughs> uh, and it feels that they kind of are slowly but surely doing that. So the 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 differences in behavior or APIs that were the, uh, specific APIs or specific controls and views that were not available on, let's say, when you run Swift UI code on the Mac, are not available because they need to be available for Catalyst. So kind of you kind of start to see like, oh yeah, but in the end, I might not have access to WatchOS APIs or WatchOS specific stuff when I run a target on iOS, but the, the iOS, iPadOS, and macOS are kind of like slowly but surely converging together. And even myself, I'm not so sure if I'm, I like that. I, I really, I was really buying into the like one platform, uh, yes, same framework, but that specificities per platform, but the knowledge, like how to use it, stay the same. And now those uh, lines are getting blurrier. So 
we'll discuss even more the changes of Mac Catalyst next year for sure when we'll talk about iOS 14 and how it evolves. Uh, but for the sake of today's episode, uh, assume that yes, Swift UI is a new UI framework that you learned uh, that should work for all the the Apple platforms, but they don't have the all the same APIs on the platform. The basis is there, reacting like uh, receiving events from your model and then making sure that you view changes. Yes, but you might have specific controls that are for the Mac that are not available on iOS or for the watch, for example. So one key element I mentioned, uh, I won't go into like for sure Swift UI is a huge, huge framework and it has had evolved a lot, uh, even in one year. So I won't go into what I used to do, like, and you'll see when I go in my UI kit section, I was like, oh, this is new API, this is a new API. But one thing I do like in the different APIs already is a lot of what you can do to make an iOS app a nice iOS app. So accessibility, uh, proper like light and dark mode colors, all that fun stuff is really built into Swift UI uh, even more. So let's say when you put a text label, it, th- there's already easy API you don't have to use with Jenky. Like I've typed them all day. So NS localized string, all that fun stuff. It's You see it's filled tacked on versus a lot of those features that makes for an iOS, a nice iOS app feel. And some of them, that's why I say feel, some of them are not that much, but some more like localization was, are becoming a first class citizen of that UI framework, which is really nice because um, I think in some, I recall that we discussed in some of our previous iOS development episode that every year the list of things that makes for a great iOS app is getting longer. And it's changing a lot every year. So having a UI framework that, like you were mentioning with Medov as an example, that you write it once, but depending on which OS or the features it adapts for the sake of the changes that Apple is making on their platform is of a good benefit for the devs. Of course, there's always trade-off of making sure you need to test it. Assumption might change, but... Uh, adding this in direction could make it easier and we'll have to see because uh right now apple hasn't really explored that too much well what i will say is the same thing i said when big Sur first got revealed which is if you are a swift ui or even to some extent a catalyst developer targeting the mac you are going to benefit a lot in the coming years when that Big Sur UI evolves over time because you're going to get a lot of stylistic changes for free that a lot of traditional Mac developers are going to have to do a lot of work to to do themselves. That is true. Let's flip a bit. I want to talk about Combine and its relationship with Swift UI. So when we talk about UIKit, I know we discussed it in the app architecture episode. There's different way to architect your iOS app. I'll just use what Apple says. In theory, UIKit was made for an architecture, an MVC architecture, so model, view, controller architecture, and the number of objects and the way you would build things is quote-unquote optimized for this. So for the sake of this episode, I don't want to go back into an app architecture episode because there's a lot of debates to be happened, but the idea is that you do have your data, so your model, uh, there's a way for it to send events, but you don't send events directly to the view. There's a, a layer in between the controller that will react to those data changes possibly or those multiple of events in both ways. You click a button, 
it needs to to create it's a new uh, let's say create a new to do. So you need to, in your data layer create a new to do. So somebody is orchestrating all of this event event between the view and the model, and that's where the controller lies in between. Uh, with Swift UI, it's a, it's a more direct approach because of two things. Uh, with the concept of functional and reactive programming, it is making easier to remove this third layer. You say, hey, I want this label to always be this to-do's name. Then you link those two together and there's a stream that is making sure that when the name of the to-do changes, you don't need to listen, oh, my to-do has changed. Then I need to update this view and then take the text property that is the name and assign it. They are linked together and a stream create that. And I use the word stream because combine is exactly that. It is to, and if I use from the Apple documentation, it is uh, to customize and link of asynchronous event by combining event processing operators. More or less, and they even say, it's a, it's a way to provide a declarative API for processing values over time, which is literally a definition of stream. Like a stream is you receive things through it. It could be a water stream. So it's like you receive water over time, right? Um, and those values can be anything you want. And by building, by building those streams, you can start to change the way, the way you model, uh, your model and to strand those events without having this uh, this intermediate that is quote-unquote the controller uh, because uh, one of the downsides of vanilla MVC is if you're not careful about what you do, you might end up with the controller that does multiple things. It might be listening to your data events. It might be listening to the view events. It might be creating the two. It might also be doing a bit of network fetching. So it becomes kind of a jungler for all your business logic and all the interaction. And I'm not saying that Swift UI is like a, the magic solution to this and even functional reactive programming, but for sure, those aspects makes it a bit harder. And there has been a lot of third-party frameworks to bring functional pro- program, functional reactive programming to iOS. And now to see Apple bring their own statement to the table and say here's what we think it should be with combine is quite interesting so combine more or less declares uh two things uh you might uh, they call it publisher and subscriber and let's say for example one thing we've talked in this in this podcast uh previously is uh reactive reactive extension or rx swift which is the uh, reactive extension implementation in swift uh where they call it uh, observable and observer so the, and they also subscribe they have different wording but they more or less do the same thing you have one side that is emitting events and you have another side that is receiving those events and the stream is what connects it in the middle of course when you rec- when you have the stream you can make multiple operations to transform the data received or even transform it to other stream which is that's still uh, uh, mind-boggling sometimes when i see code and write code about that or even pr code about like a stream that creates three streams and all that fun stuff but i digress with this uh, episode um so on top of allowing you to create your own stream of events uh apple has modified foundation.framework to expose certain apis that were in their were in their conception stream of events if you think about it a timer 
is a stream of event that if it's that emits nothing but that just tells you a something happened something happened at a specific interval uh, another example is notification center somebody is sending a notification in the system and then another part of your application receive that it, it is an event uh, that you might receive zero time multiple times that could error out or not and those are all concepts that combine as and that also has been brought up to foundation types and the last one is also uh, an SURL session which is more or less the way to do uh, HTTP calls using Apple's framework. So those two are combined together with addition in SwiftUI to make it easy to take changes in your model frame in model data and make sure that the second they change, they replicate on the UI. Because with some of those stream of events, Swift UI, when it, they receive like, hey, the model has changed, it will ask you to recreate the view. And because it is not the layers and the views and the metal calls, because it's just an ERQ struct, this is super light to recreate like 10,000 times during the year, the, the, your view life cycles process. For sure, if you create it too frequently, there is performance issue. But the idea is it is light enough for it to be recreated every time there's a change so that then they can do, again, this defining algorithm and then do the minimal amount of changes on screen where this is where the most uh, most of the heavy call, the costly calls are not in this truck. So I do hope that with this small introduction, I know it's still eye level, not the type of things I usually do in this episode, but uh, Swift UI and Combine has been the big, big, big topic of the last year in uh, iOS development. Uh, they're for sure the next big thing. Um, and I couldn't not go through that and have a small introduction about them because uh, they might not be something you tackled today in your app because uh, one downside I'll mention is uh, part of all the minor version of iOS 13. If you, last year you were following the the if you were following the people that were tr- using uh, Swift UI right away, second it got launched, even in the betas. Uh, and even after a 13.1 and 13.2 with all the minor version of iOS 13, uh, people were quick to mention that sometimes Apple were breaking fundamental controls. So like a button wouldn't react the same way in 13.1 than 13.2. And let me tell you, this is the worst nightmare a dev can have <laughs> where their platform they're working on changes behind them. And a bug that was fixed, let's say, I, I don't ex- remember the exact versions, but I did remember there was a lot of, oh, yes, this used to be working fine. Like, they f- it was a problem in the beta. They fixed it in 13.0. It broke again with the same thing in 13.1. It got fixed in 13.2. Broke a different way in 13.3. So it was really of quite the nightmare. And it seems that, again, it's still early in the iOS 14 lifecycle. Uh, but it seems that right now with all the big changes, the new other changes that has been added to iOS 14, it seems that that has died down a bit. Uh, so iOS 13 ends with UI was kind of the, you know, the first year, so it might not be perfect. But one thing to note, though, is Combine, and it really heard people saying that, Combine was rock solid from day one because it's so it's so. Com- not composed, but so centralized and so like one thing. If you don't want to use the Swift UI aspect of Combine, you just don't use Swift UI. The main downside is you could use Combine and UI Kit, but a lot of the uh, 
the niceties that makes it nice to play with Swift UI are not implemented for UIKit. So you might have seen from other fellow developers or even by going on GitHub that there's a lot of libraries that are just plug-in UIKit publisher or subscriber, depending on if it's a button that's emit an event or it is a label that wants to receive an event. So all those, uh, those plugs to put your stream of data to a UI element, people, you have to build them. So you can use a third-party library or you can decide to build it yourself so you can learn, uh, combine even more because they are like, this is a foundation tool and it's why it's part of foundation or it's its own framework, but it's part of the foundation of the Swift language is because you can build a lot of things. You can build layers on top of it and one layer can be an indirection layer to talk to UIKit if you want. Good. Next point that I've been brought up during the conversation with Swift UI is Mac Catalyst. So Mac Catalyst per itself is not a technology itself. It is more or less Apple bringing UIKit and specific AppKit framework to iOS and to the Mac. So there's the part of like uh, bringing UIKit to, to the Mac so you can run your iPad OS version, uh, so your iPad apps. And also exposing AppKit specific APIs to UIKit so that you can have Mac specific controls that did not exist in the past. Uh, two good examples of that is NS Toolbar and NS Touch Bar. So we'll talk about the first one a bit quickly. Uh, all the controls, all the ways, like NS Toolbar, there's a UI Toolbar equivalent, but it's really for a UI toolbar in UIKit with iOS nomenclature and UI, iOS uh, mechanics versus uh, NS toolbar is more to fit with uh, the traffic light and all the buttons. And now with Big Sur, the, the split one where the sidebar one is uh, different, it's continuous with the sidebar, not continuous with the top uh, toolbar. Um, so there's all of these controls, all of these objects that people, I think people familiar with AppKit will recognize them now exposed to UIKit. There's new APIs that are exposed to UIKit uh, that are to communicate, not to communicate, but create new things. A good example is UI menu. So UI menu is quite flexible because you can use it, especially on iOS 14 uh, with the new uh, right click, actually right click, but either long press or even right click on iPad OS for uh, showing those like uh, in place menu or those right click menus like uh, I always call them on the Mac uh, but they use the same they use the same elements to bring the uh, the Mac menu support so you will use the same objects UI menu UI menu builder uh, that they were introduced in Mac Catalyst to now also bring those functionality back to iPad OS uh, with under uh, yes under iOS 14, but those are new APIs that are getting reused, which is quite interesting because the work you can do in under iOS 13 and uh, Catalina to bring your iOS iPad app to the Mac, then with the new changes that you will be able to experience once you decide to only support Big Sur and up and iOS 14 and up, brings for a more I'd say a more coherent iPad to Mac experience. Uh, as Yannick mentioned a bit earlier, some might say that that's not what you want as a user and a developer of Apple platform. But this is what Apple is saying is you write it 
more or less once. You do a couple of tweaks in and there and they adapt to each other. Um, so MacAdalys is a lot of, not a lot, I think it's a handful. If you end up looking at the, the API diff, uh, you realize that uh, this is really like a laser focused API. So for example, I said uh, an S toolbar, uh, our good friend, the scene, the UI scene API is back. So when we were adding uh, multiple views to iOS, that also is available on the Mac. So uh, window UI window scene is quite important uh, on your uh, for your iOS app to be scene compatible if you want to bring it to the Mac and especially support multiple windows on the Mac. And another thing that is the last part about new APIs, AppKit APIs, also changes to UI kit, like really like changes from uh, APIs you ex- uh, you are you know well. Uh, a good example I can give you uh, that will come a bit later, but uh, that is less um, present in iOS 13 is that some control now they have Mac Catalyst specific options. Uh, the best example, sadly, it's only on iOS 14, but it is the checkbox or so UI, UI switch now as a proper checkbox style so that it doesn't show as a toggle uh, on Mac Catalyst, but it uses the underlying um, the underlying AppKit checkbox. Those are fewer far in between under iOS 13 and Catalina, but this this year with 14, uh, there's more. So that's the, that's why I keep it short for Mac Catalyst because a lot of the nice thing, again, a bit like SwiftUI, uh, last year was the first year to support those. Yes, Apple did a big push, but you'll realize quickly that when you go through recognition, when you play with things, a, it might not be as perfect as it seemed. Of course, there are new APIs. And B, the, the year a year after, a lot of things has evolved, and you might want to use uh, or force your users to have the latest OS because the latest OS brings more some so much functionality that uh, it makes it either hard to do it before or the user experience is so shitty that you don't want to do it now. But it's good to think about it still. Anything else you want to add about the Mac Catalyst? It's bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Don't use it, people. Good. I guess uh, <laughs> with that statement, we'll move to UIKit. So again, in, in this episode, uh, I usually go through general frameworks. Uh, so it's not like our WDBC episode uh, where I talk about a funky, uh, we can talk about funky presentations that might not be talked on all the blogs on the web or all the iOS devs on Twitter. Uh, so this one, I keep it more uh, as a reminder for uh, a reminder that can apply to most, if not, I wouldn't say all, but most iOS developers. So I do focus on UIKit. Uh, I have a special place in my heart. And I'll regret saying this, but I have a special place in my heart for Core Data. So we'll talk about Core Data too. So now let's start with new APIs in uh, UIKit. In the recent versions, uh, it seems that changes to UIKit, I would say slow down, but it's kind of like UIKit is now a, ma- a mature framework. So we shouldn't be expecting big changes every year and in multiple places in it. But Apple every year seems to add features that if you've been using UIKit for long, you're like, ooh, they're removing this pain point. They're like tweaking 
this architecture choice they made to make it easier to use. Does that remind you of anything? Uh, okay, you, okay, you didn't pick up on the no. on the point that I was trying to make here. No, not at all. Sorry about that. It's very similar to what we saw to uh, happening to Objective C in the years immediately following the launch of Swift, which is starts picking up a bunch of little things that are just getting it a little bit closer to what uh what's possible swift um i i didn't necessarily agree with a bunch of those changes but some of them were pretty nice like the the literals uh for ns number and all that stuff um Mm -hmm. oh wow that's a long time ago yes uh but (laughs) uh similarly i think like ui kit whether we like it or not is kind of it's not going away permanently, but it's going to be less and less encouraged to be using UIKit for newer development. And I think like these are probably the last features you're going to get for a while. So get enjoy them while you get them. Um, I'm eager to see because I have a small list, yes, but I don't think the list is smaller for iOS 14, which is interesting because like in preparation, we're in the middle of iOS 14 usually uh, because it's uh, I do it earlier in the fall. There's maybe less content ready. The docu- Apple documentation is less ready for this. So it's easier for me to ignore. Uh, this year was a bit harder for me to ignore. So I, I try to focus really on 13, but there are nice changes. And again, those small tweaks, they're not small in themselves. They are big time savers. I'm just thinking, for example, at the diffable data sources for UI table view and UI collection view. I would have assumed that Apple would do that, but this is so much, and I'll come about it. Uh, come back about it. Uh, but there's even other new things in iOS 14 about making it easier while adding again a, another layer of indirection to customize UI table view cell. Uh, they have what they call the configuration cell configuration API. I don't think I guess too much on this, but I see where you're going with this, but I feel it doesn't slow down. Like it it kind of like they're in a sweet spot where they're continuing improving it. Whereas I felt that Objective C was they announced Swift, they continue the plateau and uh, like they slowed down on it, but they continue maybe a year or two of improvement and then it stopped. Right. I, I think the one distinctive factor to this migration as opposed to the Objective-C to Swift migration is that for the imaginable future anyway, uh, UIKit continues to exist as sort of the backing store for Swift UI where right. not every type of object has been implemented in a new fancy way. So they sort of have to rely on it as the support for Swift UI right now, which is probably why it's going to get more stuff than Objective-C did uh, swallow, if not swallowing, following the Swift release. Good. So um, at the end of my UI kit session, I'm eager, I'm eager to see what you think of the recent changes that I think are really, uh, that are re- that are, some of them are really going to be really like time saver uh, for me as a dev. Uh, but first, let's start with smaller changes. Uh, iOS 13 was... Uh, the introduction of dark and light mo- of dark mode on iOS. So it does mean that now you have proper APIs to give semantic meaning to your colors because you know what? Uh, if you say that the color is black, uh, you might not want it to be black when it's in running in dark mode because nobody will see anything on their screen. Uh, so Apple added this concept of semantic colors, which 
I think a lot of designers know about that. They want to talk about the blue. They want to talk about maybe the key color of your app or the, I don't know, the text color, the title color of your app. So uh, Apple has added way more UI colors, system colors that you can use in your app that will adjust depending on whether your your phone is running on light or dark mode and also added new APIs for you to bring your custom colors that are that uh, that you desire requires to have and then build in such a way that they also do the automatically switch without having you to listen to the event oh okay this view by the way the uh, light and dark mode change so please refresh yourself and then go fetch my other color uh, so those are really nice apis to help on that they're ma- the main of them they are mainly on ui color so i invite you to look at ui color for this again with the lo- with losing uh 3D touch on all the phones. Uh, it meant that there was uh, this new preview behavior that kept to replace peak and pop, and also the addition of contextual menu. It's because peak and pop, if you recall, it was kind of you, you force touch on or you 3D touch on your phone because that was on the phone, uh, and then that was kind of a, a preview. If uh, the best way I could say is you wanted to open the mail, uh, you were in the list of mail, but you don't want to open it fully full screen with all the nice the, the same the toolbars and everything and also change the uh red to unread the red on red badge uh, you could 3d touch and then it would show it in a small screen and you have options that is all gone the way it used to be implemented this this is implemented with new things uh ui contextual menus uh and those are also supported on ipad which peak and pop was not so uh, if you're, you did implement and did commit on peak and pop uh, by bumping to iOS 13, you will have surprising, uh, nice sup- deprecation surprises regarding that API. Uh, a nice one before I go with uh, my diffable data sources is if you've been a big users of UI collection view, um, and a lot of time, you did end up having to build your own layout. So uh, the system provides us with UI collection view flow layout, which is more or less like trying to simulate a quote-unquote list that scrolls either vertically or horizontally. So the element flows from left to right or top to bottom or bottom to top, up to you to define it. Uh, but those were the those were the only simple flow uh, that your element can move in a collection view. Uh, now they've built what they call UI collection view compositional layout, which I think the best example I can give to you, and they use that a lot in their presentation, is you know when you go in the app store, it's a nice list and you have like different section and this list of sections scrolls horizontal uh, vertically, but each section scrolls vertically. And previously you either have to write a lot of complex layout code in your in uh, your own subclass or UI collection view layout to do that or you would end up I've seen code uh, in previous lives where it was like it was collection views or collection views or collection view <laughs> having a scroll view inside like a lot of weird custom code what compositional layout brings to the table is literally compose different layouts in different section but in the end it is just one collection view it's just that the layout is able to encapsulate all of these different flowing methods and by doing that you can easily compose different let's say flow layouts that are built by apple they're maintained by apple you don't need to to 
uh, scratch your head writing custom code to flow uh, to build a UI collection view layout. If you read all the tutorials on the web, you'll see they are quite complex because it's not uh, it's not easy to do, especially if you want to have the the elements in your collection view to self size because that's a nice feature. Uh, so if you have if the the, the users use a different text size you want your element to resize and self-sizing cells is good for that uh, so compositional layout is able to composition three four five six layout into one which means you end up with one source of data so one data source the funniest thing about this entire api to me is this is precisely the use case at which swift ui excels at mm-hmm. and they're like oh but you can also do this in ui kit now too which is kind of weird. Like you would think like this is something that's really easy to do in Swift UI. Let's just force them to do it in Swift UI because it'll boost adoption. Maybe there was some hesitation or maybe it had just started already uh, being developed in UI kit or whatever. And that's they true. just like pushed it out. But it's just like, it's weird. Uh, I, I would have assumed personally that maybe that's more the latter of what you said that it was already started. So this, yeah. but I do recall that, uh, it was kind of, there was a, that plus diffable data source that will be coming to was pushed quite heavily to UI kit users. Like, you know what? You're tired of doing this, writing the same code every time you want to do something fancy. We're there to help you, help make your life easier. And I do think that while it is not maybe a good journey to tell you, go use Swift UI, I do feel that it fits their messaging behind Swift UI. Is, it is easier to use. We're, it's making the UI framework less problematic for you to write your idea. We want you to write your idea as efficiently as possible so that the tools are not in your way. And well, bring, let's not exaggerate or anything. I I say that's the messaging. Doesn't yes, mean it's the yes. reality, right? Mm-hmm. But that's the messaging. And though we can discuss in great lengths about the messaging for that with Swift UI, uh my limited understanding because I sadly the app I work on is still not on iOS uh still on iOS twelve. We're working on uh bumping out the support. But if there's one feature that we've been talking for the last year is do two, because we're many more using UI table views, it's like difficult data source and UI composition, UI UI collection view compositional layout is making us think. Hmm, maybe we should revisit places where we're like, ah, oh, writing a custom layout. Can we maybe work with the designer to change the look and feel a bit to make it a bit easier? Because we do know that uh, collection view layout are quite complex to build and not fun to write either and debug later. Definitely, and even this, like I, I said, somewhat snarkily, that this is the one use case that Swift UI excels at, and like it is relatively simple to put together that kind of layout in Swift UI, specifically like the App Store thing that you were talking about. Um, mm. But as someone who does not appreciate Swift UI, I think that it's very <laughs> good that these kind of features actually did make it into UI Kit because if I ever decide to ditch it, I can actually use UI Kit instead and not just have a terrible time. Good. Next point. Yes, I'll be talking about difficult data sources. So uh, the best way to explain uh, this new tool is to talk a bit about uh, UI table view and or UI collection. Everything I'm going to say applied to both. Um, so all of them have an object called a data source where it it is an object that tells this view what data to show. So it's a list. So uh, let's assume that there's like five elements. 
um, and you your data changes. So let's say we fetch a new update from a server and then uh, element one stays there, element two disappears because it's deleted, element three stays, element four disappears because it's deleted, and element five. And you just don't, it's not a nice user experience to just like refresh the screen and then everything is there. Like no animation or nothing. Um, and your UI table view and collection, you add tools for you to write your custom logic to animate changes in your data source. Throughout the years, they've been evolved the API and blah, and blah, blah, blah. But let me tell you that this is again custom logic that was always crash prone because the second that you would tell a UI table view, like remove this cell, remove that cell, like remove row number one, remove row number uh, to reuse my example, remove row number two, remove row number four, update row number three because the content will change and insert, let's say, row number six. If any of those operations, when you commit them, they're not the correct one to do because your data source and now the UI, the, the, the list itself, are no longer in sync because you made a mistake or by accident, a new network event came in while you were computing this difference, uh, the app will crash because that's how this API has been written. The set, and you, as an iOS dev, you might have seen that. Like, uh, we committed animation for your table view, uh, beginning with one row, finishing with zero, uh, expecting one row. And it's a huge crash log and it's telling you that more or less you fucked up uh, somehow. And what I'm seeing with colleagues and friends and that are iOS devs is sometimes like those are hard to repro because they're based on a network event. Like you receive new data, you try to compute something and now you need to figure out, oh yeah, but okay, I need to re regenerate this event with the exact same data and then see what was the, the data before. So those are either, they are also A, hard to write and B, hard to debug in the end. And what difficult data sources is doing is more or less forcing you to say, please uniquely identify all those elements. If you're able to do that, just tell me state A, state B, and I'll compute the difference. And I'll animate for you. And you're able to literally tell to the system, here's, a, and the way I recall it is they use the word snapshot. So here's a snapshot of my state at time X. And then, oh, I receive a new snapshot. So please like make the view accept the snapshot. And then it would do, it would figure out all the proper insert, update, delete that the table view needs to do, do it for you. And then you don't have to write this logic because hopefully Apple has write it in such a way that they have removed all the crashes because they also know what to expect because they can look at the code that UI table view wants to see. So if there's one place that I want to start using difficult, like there's one thing I want to use, start using once we move to iOS 13 is really difficult at the sources because this, I played a bit, you know, with simple apps, with the demos and tutorials. For sure, it's not like simple to use but it's like oh yeah okay of course like there's five elements there's not really a network call or there's not like 10 network calls because i need to do a lot of calls with my apis so it makes sense in those demos that it works and never crashes but like i want to see it with an app that has been out for a while that we change it and i'm really really geared for that because this is going to be quite nice and people that have used it saying like oh my god why wasn't it added earlier in ui kit because 
this is well executed by Apple. A couple of other few, small few changes. Uh, one thing that is about the look and feel of UI table view. Um, so if you may recall, um, there's two styles for UI table view. One is called plain and one is called grouped. And um, when they move to iOS 7 and the flat uh, design style, uh, both of them more or less like those two styles kind of looked quite this, quite similar. The one you use for preferences and the one you use for the rest of the app. <laughs> <laughs> right and it's funny that you say that because even like on ios 7 the one you use in preference and the one you use in the app were exactly the same so it was plain versus grouped and slowly but surely apple changed settings the app to bring back the previous uh, the pre-ios 7 look to group which was more kind of you can imagine a, a pill so let's say you have three rows but then three rows the first row will have the, the rounded corner at the top left and top right. And the last row would have the bottom right and bottom bottom left, bottom right. So that, that would create a shape of a pill. Um, so finally, finally, they've added a new style to bring this back. Uh, because I think since iOS 11, the settings app had this pill shape look on their table view, but that was never really accessible to iOS developers. So they have added a new uh, UI table view style called insert grouped that brings back this pill shape uh, to your own app so you can use it and also it's part of like kind of the design tweaks on like 12 13 and 14 you see that like messages uh, reminders uh, notes are using this uh, design style uh, and their sidebar a lot of the sidebar look are using uh, insert grouped so glad to see it back for the should, should I say rare users, but for the interface builder users and even the storyboard users, oh, never forget. Apple have added new APIs to fix some of the main issue, not main, but some of the issues with view controller installation and using segways. Uh, so <laughs> I remember this is something you've complained about since the beginning. Yes. So. The way you would create that is a lot of dynamism uh, using the dynamic runtime, uh, the Objective C dynamic runtime, and string keys. Uh, but they have added a new IB segue action, which is a property you can add to an Objective C method, or even a Swift one, um, to annotate it. So it's an annotation, excuse me, so that IB can see it, and then you can tell uh, interface builder to say a. When you want to create my new, my new view controller to move to, before calling all the other Segway APIs, please call this one and it will return you a properly configured instance. So uh, a lot of what you have to do before is when you want to move from one screen to the other, uh, when using Storyboard, you had to more or less interrupt the system or inject yourself in one of the system events and say like, hey, oh, can you tell me what's the destination view controller? And then... He, and UIK will say, yeah, here's a view controller, but then it's not your own custom subclass. And so you had to do a lot of casting and then making sure to configure all the properties because the system would initialize it for you. Now with IB seg segue action, you can tell the system, here's a function to do initialization. I'll inject all my default values in it and then, or my network layer and all that fun stuff. And that now the, uh, Interface Builder and Storyboards can call those before uh, calling those segues and making sure you create the view controller the way you want. 
uh, as quickly mentioned too in a previous section, uh, the scene-based API to create uh, application windows is getting a lot more uh, love into this because it fits with the big narrative of uh, iPadOS, Catalyst, and all that fun stuff that also applies to, of course, uh, iPadOS. Last point, which is uh, an update to iOS 13.4. Uh, and this is this is the one, if you recall, which brought uh, pointer device support to iOS. Again, to fit in a big picture of like your i your iPad app runs on iPad and on the Mac works night with the Magic Keyboard. And this is a call. This is multiple classes to bring support to it and even bring proper keyboard support. Yes, there was keyboard support, uh, but it was more kind of generic. It was basis. So uh, best example I can give you, you wouldn't be able to know when you press a key and you hold or you press and it goes up, key up, key down, all those events, you never got them. So iOS 13.4, they bring it with uh, a class to call a UI pointer direction, which is allowing you to have other state like on the desktop, on iPad and all that nice functionality that you can have now under UIKit. Next up, let's talk about core data. Uh, of course, Cordelia got a bit of love to support UI, Swift UI. So, uh, two things uh, happened is, um, it made NS manage object conform to the observable object, which is, uh, the protocol that tells Swift UI this object might change in the future. So you can create a stream of event and then notify the view that it has changed so it has to refresh itself. And also it created the fetch request property wrapper that it is used to Tell SwiftUI or listen SwiftUI, A, uh, to get your data, execute this fetch request on core data, which I haven't played too much with. Seems interesting. I want to see how powerful it is because I wouldn't be surprised that right now it might be a bit more limited. And last but not least, uh, you can also have access to the NS manager of the context into your SwiftUI's environment. Uh, the environment is something that all the views have access to. They can read about for example, here, the manage of the context, they can read about um, like dart mode and light mode. If you need to know about this, you don't really need to, but if you want to, stuff like that is stuff in an object called the environment. Uh, so this is also exposing that for core data. Uh, the other two big changes, uh, three big changes, excuse me, for uh, core data is we've discussed in past episode, the uh, NS batch X request object. So NS batch update and as batch uh, delete uh, request objects which brings kind of sql like requests back to core data because as we know uh, core data is an more of an orm that kind of a database layer so uh, changing a property on all your object in core data requires you to load all the objects in memory one by one just to flip a bit let's say oh this this uh, article in my rss reader has been read uh, so they fixed that in the past by doing NS batch update request or batch delete, but they didn't do batch insert and batch insert uh, was added to iOS 14. And I think it was uh, quite overdue because batch update was added in iOS 8, batch delete was added in iOS 9. And it took literally four versions after those, after the last one to get batch insert. Kind of wish that they all came together, but you know what? Now it's there. Now you can optimize, you can remove your custom code that kind of did that in core data. Uh, so now you can use NS batch insert request. It's even weirder if you just like rewind all the way to when core data was EOF and you're like, well, how did this not get in the framework earlier? Yep. 
Yeah. Uh, another one that this one I feel is going to be a great addition and I will also remove a lot of custom code I had to write in the past with Coreda is NS derive attribute description and it's describe how a new attribute on your uh, on one of your model object in Coreda derives its value from another one. Uh, the best example I can give you is a, a normalized string and this is one of the examples also they give in the documentation. Um, Let's say we have an app that is full of contacts and you want to search for, uh, so you have your store name and first name and last names and you want to search for Luc Olivier and you forgot to put the iPhone in between and you still kind of want to search for this. Like you don't want to put like special characters like um, E-cute A's and uh, E's and stuff like that. You want to say like if you put just an E, it search for all those special characters. But for Corada to for for Corada to do that, you need to normalize the field out. So you need to remove all of these. And like again, with the part with that Corada is not a database, but it is a database. When that field is normalized, and especially when you use SQLite, is because you cannot do those type of search using SQLite searches and indexes. So you a normalize, then store it. Uh, and then you can index and do proper search using those. And those are fast and not loading all the object one by one and going through one by one. So with NS derived attribute description, what you do is you more say, hey, this is how this calculated attribute is defined. So you run every time you save this the object, uh, just run that. And then I don't need to write this custom code and create the, the second attribute myself. Cordata will do it for you. So you don't you just need to define the, the transformation and attach it to your object and then Cordata does the rest, which is quite interesting. Last change, and I think this is the biggest change for iOS for 13 and Cordata, is NS Persistent Cloud Kit Container. Ooh. So uh, NS Persistent Container is a new class that was introduced, I think, in iOS 11, which is more or less like what should be all like there was different ways to call to create you what the, a lot of developers call the Cordata stack. So the different uh, NS manage object context, NS manage object model, ob- and those are all encapsulated now in their own class. That Apple says if you want to use Cordata, you need a bunch of object, but NS persistent container does it for you. When they did that in iOS uh, iOS 11, it was kind of oh, okay. It's, nice but i have to see how it like it changed but now if you've done that and you need your data to sync between the devices of one user ns persistent cloud kit container is literally a drop-in replacement for where you call ns persistent container and that gives you the opportunity to mirror all your core data content and mirrors it to the private cloud kit database so there's different type of databases in cloud kit uh, the private one is the one that is more or less saying I use the user's iCloud data usage so there's that but more or less of course I've seen I haven't used that uh, I've seen a lot of people mentioning that yeah it's there's maybe a bit of iCloud core data that is coming back with this <laughs> it's not I as nice say. as it's not as nice as what a lot of people are saying I think a lot of the merging uh, you need to do a lot of it yourself which I'm not surprised. Uh, but again, it seems though uh, more reliable at synchronizing data because I think a lot of 
everything that I've heard that is built on top of CloudKit is uber reliable. So at least that part seems to be quite well, uh, but you might need to do a bit of massaging of your data to make sure that it's make it easier for you to uh, manage conflicts or stuff like that when you receive data. And I think there's like a recent presentation on exact, uh, that was added even this year on uh, with uh, WDC2020 about how to help uh, you on that uh, that was not present last year. Okay, before I go to the random trivia section, uh, one last new API, which is quite interesting, is called Metricrit. And Metricrit is a new framework to aggregate and analyze device-based metrics. So maybe currently you're using a third-party crash analysis tool. And guess what? Uh, Metricrit fits in that category. Uh, but it no, not only exposed crash and, uh, crashes, it exposed a lot of nice of other data uh, that is quite useful to figure out performance, power usage, to make a, a solid app. So here's a few examples of what Metakit can expose to you as a developer. Uh, CPU, GPU, and display time. So amount of time spent using all those uh, resources. Same thing with the location services activity time, uh, amount of network transfer, whether you're using the cellular connection, app runtime, whether it's in foreground, a background, even background audio or background location services, the time it took for the OS to first launch your app and for app your app to become responsive, average and peak memory, number of disrights, like a lot, and even crashes, so I shouldn't forget. A lot of what you would have maybe assumed to see on the Mac under Activity Monitor. And it's interesting because now this is available to your own app. So you could build your own app monitoring and analysis tool while only relying on Apple's framework. And of course, your possibly your own uh, server infrastructure and not have to rely on a third-party player to have access to your own code base or uh, put in the, like a closed source framework and then you don't really know what they do. So of course, uh, there's a lot to digest about this. I really strongly invite you to see uh, what you can do. Uh, one thing that is really interesting about the crashes is because it's using Apple's crash service, uh, like you might have already seen with Xcode. Uh, you you have access to different crashes like when the OS kills you because you're taking too time, uh, too much time, or when you're taking too much energy or you're spending too much CPU time, those crashes when you use a third-party crash service, they don't uh, they don't get uh, relied to you because uh, the crash analysis tool runs in app. So the next time your app launches, and those crashes are at the OS level. So Metrikit is able to help you on this the same way it is already doing that via Xcode, uh, but now it's a, an API framework that you can have access to data in your own app, allowing you to build your own analysis on that data and hopefully create a better app for your user because all of these metrics more or less is telling you where are the bottlenecks, where are the angs, uh, what are the performance leaks, I could say. Uh, why am I spending too much time on my CPU? Why am I sp- oh, le- letting the GPS open uh, too much or maybe i request location active location permission for like just one call but then i realize that oh um maybe one of the third party sdks i have in my app is abusing of my location permission and then uh spending a lot of time using it so you might be able to see it you might be able to see it with this number because you realize that hey and 
90% of the time my app is open. It also uses the, the GPS and then it's not supposed to because there's only one flow that uses GPS. It is a bit bare bones though. So you need to fetch the data from the device and then push it to a server if need be yourself, a server of your own. Uh, you could process it locally for sure. Uh, but again, to for a remote analysis tool or to get uh, the pulse of what's happening in the wild, uh, you need to have a server component and all of that you need to build yourself. Metric kit is just to expose the data to you and to also receive those events so you can process them, but not, uh, not more than just that. So I'm eager to see because even again, this year they've added more metrics. You can, they have exposed more metrics. So I'm eager to see what Apple is going to do with this framework throughout the next few years, maybe adding more capabilities and exposing more uh, metrics. So I'm really eager to see that. That's really cool. I had no idea that this existed. I'm actually also kind of worried because I wonder how much of this can be used for fingerprinting users to de-anonymize them. But uh, uh, as long as you're not Facebook, I guess it's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, maybe we will disappear because people will abuse of it. Hopefully not, because it seemed quite powerful. Okay, I have a couple of a small... Uh, I have two random trivias. Um, one thing, if you're a web developer, uh, a quick note. I don't know, it's, a, it's a good one, but uh, starting iOS 13.3, uh, Apple added support for NFC, USB, and Lightning Fido 2 compliant security keys in Safari, SF Safari Review Controller, and AS, the web authentication session. This one is a mouthful. So more was, or less... I was briefly very scared you were telling me that there was a new web NFC API I hadn't heard about. Oh, uh, maybe, but <laughs> no, I, no. I guess Apple will never support it. It's, we're not talking about Google Chrome here. But more or less, what this means is... Um, for secure environment or secure apps where it requires you to own a specific Fido 2 compliant key for you to have your two-factor authentication, it does mean that now iOS devices support those keys and web apps can, uh, not only web apps, because uh, AS web authentication session could be for logging into an application using two-factor auth, uh, but those three components support that. So it does mean that you can expose that for iOS user, which was not the case before. I know a handful of Google employees were very happy about this. Yeah, a lot of security experts too when that was added. So, uh, and I think that was teased in the Safari preview, the web preview one. Yeah. Uh, so we knew it came for a long while, but if you were not following the news, I th it was good to mention. The other one that is related also to web development uh, is that uh, starting iOS 13, uh, iPadOS and Safari and even WebKit. So if you have uh, WK WebView views in your app, uh, they now support the new Safari desktop mode where the iPadOS will eliminate a, a, uh, why am I blinking? Emulate. Sorry about that. Emulate the fact as if it was Safari Mac. So it meant that maybe, oh, that is the type of work I would have assumed you fixed uh, when iOS 13 got released. But if you didn't know and you didn't understood why uh, you were kind of running the um, the desktop behavior of your web app on iOS iPad, that's why it's because of desktop mode. And of course, there are ways to force either mobile mode, the desktop mode, or even build your own UIs to, to do that 
with WK WebView that has been exposed on the iOS 13. And that wraps it up. Uh, again, depending of where you see, if you're a UI kit developer, uh, you'll see that the changes in the last years, they're, they're there, but they're not as frequent as they used to be. There are, of course, new APIs, uh, Swift UI and Combine, that in the next year, the next few years to come, will change the way we'll develop iOS apps. Um, but I still feel today uh, that, again, uh, those changes in the APIs are good enough for, like, y- you can still ignore it. Uh, one thing that I'm a bit sad about uh, sw- more Swift framework, and you'll see it is really just for the purpose of this episode, it is that it makes it a bit harder for me to build the episode a year later. Because uh, while Apple used to have uh, proper, like really like real diff, so it tells you like, okay, this from the Objective-C interface of the framework, that metal has changed, this property name has changed, we added the deprecated attribute, and uh, Apple used to build those diff. They stopped doing that, but but uh, people in the community build a tool. So I'll put a link in the show notes uh, from uh, one of the websites I used that did that. So it was easy to me to see what are the changes from iOS 12.4 to 13 because you know what? Somebody built a diff, which Apple stopped doing. What I realized with uh, the recent redesign of the past few years of the Apple documentation is yes, there is a diff, but if I were to look at it today for SwiftUI, for example, it tells me the changes between Xcode, Xcode 12.0 to 12.3, yeah. which is useless for the purpose of this episode where I want to see. And I shouldn't say only for the purpose of the episode. I think overall, sometimes you will spend a lot of... Not sometimes. Usually what happens, from what I've seen with a lot of my friends, is they spend a lot of energy in due to like understand, process all the new changes. Then they go back to work. And they need to go back to their jobby job and they need to go back to the business needs. So they kind of like, kind of forget about that. Then they bump up the uh, minimal deployment target in their app because they can do that maybe a year after for the, because of their business need. And they're like, oh yeah, what can I do? And it was nice for me, even it's nice for me for the Objective-C one because I just like, okay, let me go through UI kit. I scrolled through it. Okay, oh yeah, there's this new API I forgot. And then you click on it and yes, it goes to new documentation, but it's a visual to say what has changed quickly. Um, and sadly, Apple is kind of moving away from that. And even for Swift-only frameworks, as Swift UI is, uh, what Apple is doing in their own documentation is really for short-term memory. So you want to know what changed between Swift UI under iOS 13 and Swift UI, so Swift UI 1 and Swift UI 2, if you can call them this way. Uh, no way to know. Just look at the documentation, try to, or try a call, and then Excel will tell you, oh yeah, that's only available on iOS 14 and your minimum deployment target is 13. So make a conditional statement for it to just work there. And then you know. So uh, I've, see that as a regression and i do hope that apple's documentation will improve to i'm not saying it will go back to what it used to be but for sure i do hope that it's getting a, it should get be getting better on that front because i do really enjoy every couple of months to refresh my mind and reread some of the diff and not just go watch wdbc videos yeah definitely uh i think there have been a significant amount of documentation related 
regressions over the last few years and it's incredibly frustrating and it's kind of part of the reason i dislike the new swift direction that things are going into but that's all you're gonna get for today <laughs> <laughs> but yeah uh, there is this is one of the things uh personally i do uh dislike from those regression is uh the the, the poor diff that went away and came back half-baked Unfortunately, though, it would actually be somewhat tricky for certain types of APIs to actually do a diff that is meaningful in any way, putting aside the whole obc class dump thing, which is completely different because now you're dumping its symbols and everything. But yeah. And that wraps it up for the iOS minimum deployment target for this year. Cool. So if you want to find the show notes for this episode, you can find them all at limitlesspossibility.net slash 152, or you can go listen to our back catalog of episodes. You can find them all at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find us on Twitter. The show is at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. I am at Sakarina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And you can find Ducadivier at Luconoche. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.